We've had a lot of unicorn founders. We've had the founder of Sneak, Zilch, quite a few others actually as well. What separates a unicorn founder from a normal founder? It's a great question. And I think about it a lot. These people are extremely good at hiring. They're leaders and they enable others to do their best work. They're all insanely hard workers, insanely ambitious. Welcome back to Brick by Brick, everyone. Today, I'm joined by Hector Mason, who is a general partner at Episode One Ventures, co-founder of Focal VC and the co-host of Riding Unicorns, which is a podcast about early stage tech companies. Great to be on the podcast. Uh, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate you taking the time. I first came across you because I came to the virtual demo day for Focal and I watched all the pictures because I'm very interested in pitches and how they work. Mm. And I was, when I, when I came to that day, I just read The Power Law, which is, I don't know if you've read it, about yeah, the history. Great of, yeah, yeah, I'm about yeah. a third of the way through it, and I should be finished by the end of 2025. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a great book, but it's about like how VCs developed, um, the industry has changed over like the past 50 years. And then I came to this, and I was like, this feels like the next forefront of venture capital, it's a very innovative idea. Can you expand a bit upon what it is, how it works and why it's different to what already exists? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so Focal um, is a demo day without the accelerator. So um, what we realized was that there are a lot of these accelerator programs, which were great all around the world, you know, Techstars, Y Combinator, um, EF, which is Entrepreneur First, and a bunch of others. And um, they're all doing a great job and some fantastic companies coming out of them. But we realized that a huge amount of the value of these accelerated programs was actually the demo day at the end. Um, you know, lots of founders talking about 80% of the value of these accelerators being the demo day rather than the kind of mentoring and the actual program um, accompanying it. So what we did was just strip away all the complexity of these programs and, and build the best uh, demo day um, in the world. So we uh, each year, twice, twice per year, we, um, well, we partnered with 150 VC funds, leading VC funds from around the world, um, who twice per year promote these demo days. Um, and we generate thousands, many thousands of applications each year, which are then filtered down to the top 1% um, by those 150 VC partners. Um, and that top 1% then gets to pitch at a virtual demo day where in just a three minute pitch, they pitch to pretty much all of the prospective investors in their company in one go. Um, so it's really flipping the model. And rather than these founders having to uh, go out and find uh, all of the VCs who might be uh, interested in investing in their company, finding warm intros, booking and meetings, you flip that and you have all of these investors reach out to you um, and of course, they're already qualified because they've reached out to you um, and you can just book in a meeting and it really simplifies and optimizes that fundraising process. Um, and then we also allow retail investors. So any any attendee of Demo Day and it's an open access Demo Day. So you or I can join and people can invest in some of these companies, um, of course, which have been vetted by VCs um, and they can invest in these companies. And we think that that's a uh, um, really interesting alternative to crowdfunding where um, with Focal, these companies have been vetted by VCs and, and we think the, the returns that people will get 
um, should far exceed the the returns people can expect on a traditional crowdfunding site where, um, you know, fr frankly, the, the quality is very varied. Um, so, yeah, helping kind of all the different stakeholders, the the VCs by giving them deal flow, um, the the founders by making fundraising easy um, and investors giving them access to top top quartile companies. Yeah, it's amazing. It's a very innovative idea. And I'm I'm very interested in storytelling um, and like, the whole pitch process. So it was, it was fascinating to see like pitch, 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 because you can compare them and see what the different founders are like. So that was really cool. Yeah. Um, where did the idea come from? I I think it was so a long time. So it was three or four. So I think three years ago, um, my co-founder Taos had the idea of doing a joint office hours with sort of a few funds who would, um, you know, do a post on their newsletter and do a post on LinkedIn, uh, offering founders time to come in and meet like five VCs. So we did this in an office. It was a physical event. I think we had about 300 companies apply, which we thought was a decent result. But um, these kinds of events are a volume game. And, and with 300 applicants, you're not going to get um, amazing quality um, companies necessarily. Um, and so neither party really got that much out of it, neither the founders nor the VCs, because, um, yeah, you know, the founders were spending kind of a half hour with a bunch of different VCs and the VCs weren't really meeting there's a very low chance they were going to meet someone that they would want to invest in. Um, so we just decided to flip the model. Taos had the great idea to flip it into a demo day format. And we've run with that ever since. Yes. Amazing idea. And then the last thing on that I'm curious about is how does the investment for retail investors work? Is there like some special legal entity to. Yeah, exactly. Out? Exactly. So we use a company called Odin, um, which we really like, and um, they they set up vehicles. They make it very easy to to run these sorts of investments, um, and uh, you can sort of pool capital. And they go into it that you invest in a company under one name on the cap table, which makes it simple for the for the founders and well, simple for everyone involved. Really, that's great. And then in along those sorts of lines of thought where do you see the future of vc going because it seems to me as an outsider that distribution is being democratized the tech stack is being democratized like you can use angel list to run your fund How, when all of those things are no longer the competitive differences between different firms what becomes yeah. like how do you get competitive advantage yeah i mean it's a great question and um you can imagine I'm thinking about this every day, um, <laughs> given that I both uh, co-founded Focal, which is sort of um, almost the anti-VC and I'm also a, a GP at episode one, which is a, a VC fund. So I sort of got my foot in both camps. And um, frankly, I love both camps and I think um, each benefits from my involvement in the other. Um, but yeah, future of VC, I mean, it's a fascinating question. I think things have come on a long way. There are different trends. I mean, one trend that we've already touched on is like greater involvement um, uh, from from retail investors and, and the sort of umbrella term of democ democratizing um, access to uh, private companies. And it, companies like uh, Odin that we use for these uh, investment vehicles, companies like Vauban, AngelList, even Crowdcube um, and, and Focal are all um, making this great asset class available to more people. So I think that trend is going to continue. 
uh, and we're going to see more and more angel money and a mass of capital come into private markets. Uh, regulations catching up and sort of evolving. Um, so I don't know what will happen there, but there's there's always been um, there's always been something that hasn't felt quite right in the fact that um, you know pension funds slightly different class of investor, but you know at, at their core that is. Um, kind of retail it's it's actually the the people who are um retired and need their pension fund returns to to live um pension funds haven't really been able to invest that much in vc it's always been quite hard particularly in the uk that's changing so in one way or another you're going to have many more people benefiting from this fantastic asset class which you know if you invest well um in the asset class it's been it's been a um it's been a, it's provided extremely good returns over the years and it's always been strange that lots of the people who need these great returns the most and can benefit from them the most um have actually been denied access to to those returns so i think like combination of retail um, money and and pensions increasingly investing in ventures can be a great thing for the asset class and um you know there's going to be a, an emergence of many more vcs i think or or the flip side is that things could consolidate and actually there's a sort of flight to quality um, and that the the VC funds who can do it really, really well um, will attract the vast majority of that capital. So the jury's out. I think um, you know there will be more and more VC funds. I think there'll be more and more great VC funds. Um, and so that that's sort of one trend. I also think there's this other irony in VC, which is that um, it's kind of one of the last industries to have been disrupted. Um, ironic, given we're constantly investing in disruption. Um, and that is starting to change. I think there are different areas where VC is being disrupted. So you have, um, you know, wh where's, where's the, uh, where's it being differentiate um disrupted in terms of product and also where's it being uh, di disrupted in terms of business model um and i think both uh, are sort of up for grabs and in terms of product um i think uh sorry. i think the um the product is changing because people are people are building more tech and and data into their their vc products and um, if I take what we're doing in episode one, which is a pre-seed and seed investor, and for a pre-seed and seed investor, we're pretty far along the journey um, uh, in terms of building in technology and data to what we do. Um, so what are we doing? We are, um, where we're using tech and data kind of hits different areas of the investment process. So the, the key areas at the moment for us um, are in sourcing and in, in evaluating companies so um already we plug into all sorts of different sources and have sort of reverse engineered um signals for when startups are being founded and when founders are starting companies um so that we surface those signals very early and they're often the first vc to be talking to um, founders even before they've left their jobs um we have with the challenge we have at the moment is in uh kind of not sounding creepy when we message founders on LinkedIn because um, often they've like, you know, there's really no online footprint or very, very little online footprint of what they're doing. So they're kind of surprised, but most of these founders are tech founders or AI founders and um, kind of respect that we found them and, and you know, what we're building resonates with them. So it, 
it's often quite an interesting conversation and, and goes pretty well. Um, in terms of evaluating, you know, more and more VCs are going to be building um, data into their evaluation process. So um, at late stage, this has kind of been possible for quite a long time because there's a lot of quantifiable metrics that you can track and that you can correlate to startup success um, and therefore help you make an investment decision in a company. Um, so, you know, funds like Co2 and, and many others have been doing this for a long time um, and, and have, have had a lot of success with it. It's a little bit harder at pre-seed and seed because you um, a lot of the investors at this stage talk about gut feel. Yeah. Um, and it's a really interesting subject and one that I and we at episode one think about a lot. And gut instinct really is the truest form of human calculation. Um, it's taking into account everything you know about an investment context, everything you know about the, the investment, plus your entire world model, um, and everything you kind of, everything you know, in fact. Um, and you use all of those data points kind of subconsciously to arrive at a decision on whether or not to invest. Um, so we've thought a lot about how you can quantify these sort of traditionally thought of as uh, qualitative signals um, and there's actually a lot you can do so we've start we're, we're now tracking kind of 50 or 60 signals on on companies and founders to um, uh, algorithmically uh, determine whether or not they'll be successful and and what chance they have of being successful and of course it's what not sort of signals yeah so so there's there's anything from behavioral signals that you can you can determine from linkedin there's signals such as um uh like the sector company is in their fundraising journey um some of the most interesting ones are proprietary ones that we've sort of had a had a hunch that you know if a founder behaves in this way and the company is this sort of company and has been on this sort of path so far then we think that's a really good signal that the company will be successful yeah We'll then go out and find find um, data on those, back test it on a on a on a segment of data. You don't want to back test it on all the data because then you can't really test the 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 model. Um, and uh, you know, often we find that these things are um, correlated with success. So the stuff we're doing on the predictive side is really useful and kind of augments us as an investment team and allows us to operate as a small invest team, but as though we're um, a much larger investment team with teams of analysts and associates and you know, experienced investors. Um, and already yeah, actually that AI kind of acts um, in terms of its performance, uh, it already significantly outperforms a, a, um, the average VC, which is kind of surprising. Um, yeah. So it, there's, a, there's a lot going on in that space and it's going to how that all, the, the reason I take you through all of that is because it's going to play out in interesting ways. And, um, you know, one way that it could play out is just in bringing down the cost uh, of, of the product. Um, and so this is where you kind of move on to the business model uh, innovation in, in VC. Like it's perfectly possible that you get incredible funds who are able to um, charge much less in management fees and possibly in carry as well. Now, this is obviously a choice of the the VC and lots of VCs are, are greedy. Um, most all of us, <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it, 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 someone could make a real difference by offering access to this fantastic asset class at much lower cost. And I, I think that will probably happen. 
Interesting. Going back to just rewinding a tiny bit, is there a danger that by using those sorts of data inputs that you talked about, that data sort of works backwards, right? So you, as you say, you backtest it, but the next exponential business might come completely out of left of field. Is there a danger yeah. that the data could become a filter against those sorts of um, businesses? And do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And, and that's, you know, that, that's one way that it could um, work against us, but also there are all sorts of biases that are built into the sort of data we're looking at. So we're pretty careful with all of this and, and it's certainly um, something that augments us rather than replaces us as investors um, and helps us filter through companies at scale um, you know, helps us determine where to spend our time. Um, but it's certainly not making investment decisions at this point. Um, I think your point on, um, whether this might filter out outliers, which we actually want to be speaking to, I think, I think it's a great point. I think where I would say that I think we're okay is that great people tend to found great businesses and, um, you know, what, what makes a great person is probably more or less going to stay the same. I think it's actually one of the strongest um, signals and you really need to pay attention when an incredible person um, who's achieved an extraordinary amount goes and does something really weird that you're like, what the hell? Because the chances are these people are like, you know, exploring the, the, the boundaries of what we know today and probably know a lot more than we do about that particular area and um, yeah. might well be pushing out what, what we think, pushing out the sort of boundary of what we think is possible. And I think if you read the stories of like Mark Zuckerberg and all those sorts of founders that were just an absolute nightmare to be around, <laughs> but they're the ones who were turbo successful. Maybe now all these things you're talking about, um, small teams being able to do the work of big teams, it's actually becoming more competitive to be an outlier founder. So potentially you can no longer get away with being an arsehole for the first 10 years or things like that. And so are you going to make a point? Now? Yeah, no, I, I, no, I don't have anything particularly um, to say on that. I think, yeah, you, you see examples of, um, to use your, your words, arsehole founders being successful and you also hear them not being successful. So I don't know whether um, uh, that is correlated to success. Um, I, I just don't have the answer to that, but you certainly hear yeah, examples yeah. Um, supporting and, and going against it. And then along those sorts of lines of smaller teams being able to do the work of bigger teams, and I would set, go further to say individuals can now do the work of small teams. And you, you're kind of demonstrating this at the moment because you're GP at episode one and co-founder of Focal. So can you... and. I like how you said that they complement each other. It's almost as if someone said to you, um, how are you going to do both? <laughs> so how, how, this is more like a future of work question. So do you see yourself going forward, having multiple things all at once, given that the stereotypical advice has been focused through one thing? So do you see merit in having a few different things going on? Yeah, no, I think it's interesting. I mean, the, um, my, my, my real focus is episode one and that's why we've built out a management team at, at focal um but in the early days i you know i didn't know what focal was going to become um and so focal 
began as something that was just additive to episode one. It was, you know, brand building. We were doing something for the ecosystem. It was initiative. There was an initiative that was going to help founders and, and bring together VCs um, in quite a social and, and productive way. Um, one thing kind of led to another and we are where we are today. And like, there's no denying that Focal has um, brought us a lot of exposure, brought me a lot of exposure, um, helped me um, build a good network um, and also be seen and respected as a bit more of an operator, um, which is something that, that can be quite valuable in um, VC. I think, you know, founders like talking to other founders and I'd absolutely call myself a founder. I think I always will be. Um, I, I just, it happens that my business is VC. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're doing a lot of building episode one. Um, and, uh, yeah, they absolutely help each other. I mean, episode one has invested in a number of companies that have come through focal. Um, we also help, um, we, we also have, you know, various ways that we, um, you know, bring new business to episode one portfolio companies through, through focal. And, um, so yeah, episode one's my focus, but I think, um, it is perfectly possible now to have more than one sort of, um, you know, you can have a, you can have a side hustle quite feasibly, I think. Um, yeah. I don't know whether it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't have like AI agents sort of, um, running away <laughs> in the background on my desk, but, um, I'm certainly, you know, I use all the latest tools. I'm definitely a bit of a productivity freak and, um, don't feel like I waste much time and where something, um, can be automated i'll automate it and where it feels like there's a, a way to do something more scalably i'll do it more scalably and um so i often find myself you know investing um a bit up front a bit of time up front um because i know that it's going to pay dividends in the in the long run in terms of time savings yeah i want to get more onto your sort of personal approach to work but before that i feel like this is a great opportunity to ask someone who's spoken to a lot of unicorn founders what separates a unicorn founder from a normal founder? You've spoken to the founder of Kazoo, Love Film, one of the co-founders of Revolut. There's a range on your podcast. yeah. We yeah we've had a lot of we've had a lot of unicorn founders. We've had the founder of Sneak Zilch. Um, yeah, I mean quite quite a few others actually as well. Um, and it's a great question, and I think about it a lot. And you know, I've even thought about. Um, passing the transcripts of the calls through um through ai to <laughs> understand you know what are the common threads here that we see in um, unicorn founders and comparing it to other That's founders but, but you run across like selection bias issues because um or survivor bias issues because you know people are probably going to speak differently once they've achieved unicorn status and once they've been successful um, and so actually it's not necessarily the case that you should then, then be looking for the same, um, same sort of traits in very early stage founders, because actually people just change as they, as they find success. So it's really hard to find common threads, but some, some of the things that I definitely notice are these people are extremely good at hiring. They all, they all say that hiring is the most important thing. Um, I think they're broadly good judges of character. Um, they're leaders um, and they enable others to do their best work. Um, they're all insanely hard workers, um, insanely ambitious. I think 
they're often quite level-headed and able to make rational decisions under pressure um and uh you know i've heard a few times you know they they, they quite often have sort of um a lot of decision making models and matrices so that matrices so they'll they'll sort of um be very decisive um on decisions that can be reversed but they'll take their time on the ones that can't really be reversed um i think they have a level of maturity um they need to have a level of maturity i mean i think there are some hotheads who've been extremely successful but i think um i would rather back someone who was quite level-headed um yeah i mean the, these are some of the things that, that strike me so, some others might um might sort of spring to mind uh later but um yeah i'm just trying to th- yeah i mean the, these people are also incredibly commercial like one of the things we look for in episode one is people who are going to just find their way to product market fit and some people are kind of almost born with this um and it's probably a combination of being hardworking, um, extremely commercial, uh, sorry, extremely creative and sort of very logical and um, just just finding a way to um, to build that revenue um, and experimenting. You know, like one of the things that I've definitely seen is is common between all of these founders is um, ability to experiment and desire to experiment, but also um, they've all built cultures of experimentation at, at their their companies um because very very few companies go on to be like the huge winners with just one product you need to have you need to be multi-product company um and where i've seen companies and founders kind of um hit some sort of a ceiling is where they just don't quite experiment how they should and they don't have an, a culture of experimentation and then they're perhaps their employees don't feel enabled um, or the autonomy to uh, run experiments and to sort of test things um, and fail, actually. So, um, yeah, these are some of the things that strike me, but there are many more. Some really good ones in that. Um, the one I'm especially interested in, because this is a question I'm, quite, I'm trying to answer through this podcast, is hard work. Everyone says they're a hard worker. Everyone says they work 18-hour days have it and it's it's hard to sift the truth from from what actually happens mm-hmm. so when you say hard work can you give some examples of what it doesn't have to be a literal example but yeah. what does that actually look like how long are they in the office do they go to their best friend's birthday yeah do they go to the pub on a friday what i think it's a, the limit? i think it's a great question so to to throw a couple of examples out there um i listened to a podcast with joe biden um the other day and he he doesn't work crazy hours like you know if what he says is true he's kind of getting up at seven and he's kind of kicking off at six thirty, um and he's really trying not to work too hard outside of those hours um do i believe that or not i think i do um he sounded authentic when he said it and it would be a strange thing to lie about um but then you hear you hear people who so so um you know, I'm not sure I want to know names, but unicorn founders who I've had on the podcast, um, I know that they're working at 3 a.m. Like, you know, you're getting responses from them at 3 a.m. So, so are other people who know them. Um, and these people are complete addicts. Um, and that, that is um, arguably what it takes for, for some people is 
certainly an addiction for many, many people. And with that probably comes sacrifices. I just worry that in, in, a, in, a, in a way, trying to sacrifice everything, some people try and sacrifice everything immediately before there's maybe a necessity for it. And then they end up quitting because they can't keep it up. So do you think there's like a, in a way, how much you sacrifice is kind of something that you iterate on over time? Yeah, look, I think it's different for different people. I think some people are lucky. Um, you can call it, I, I think there's an element of, of luck. Some people don't have to work as hard on their resilience and on their, yeah. on their mental health and, you know, your, your circumstances, you know, how you grew up, all of these things can, can impact that. I think people also, you know, that being said, people have a lot of control over their resilience and you can do all sorts of things to build your resilience. Um, so, you know, I don't think anything is off bounds for really anyone. Um, I think anyone can become resilient, but it's certainly easier for some. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, there is a question around the sustainability of, of working that hard over a long period of time. Um, and some people manage, and I think those people are the most resilient people. Um, I also hear of people who are extremely successful and have built unicorns. Um, and we asked this question on the podcast, to unicorn founders who are very deliberate in taking time out and they'll, um, they'll go to the gym at lunch, you know, they'll, they'll go on a run every morning exercise is something that keeps on coming up the importance of exercise and i think exercise is one thing you know i don't know whether it's the exercise in and of itself that is the thing that helps or whether it's actually a period of mindfulness um when you are running or when you are cycling um that 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 helps um but i think people need to have some mindfulness i think people need to have some some exercise in their lives um, I think things like eating well, you know, it's the basic advice that everyone knows, but no one does. It's um, yeah. do do what I say, not what I do. Um, and everyone knows these things. I mean, it's one of the world's big problems, right? A lot of people know roughly what's good and right for them, um, but struggle to actually do those things. And so, you know, everything comes into it. Discipline, um, good habits, um, yeah, knowing what to do in the first place. I think things come in all, all sorts of different um forms and founders take different approaches i don't think there is a right approach you have to do what's right for you and everyone's an individual yeah i definitely think you have to learn the way i kind of look at it is like you know an avatar gets put into the body and then it's he has to work out how to use the body it's yeah. no different for us we were just born in a body but we've had our whole lives that so feels like it's ours but it's, at the end of the day it's still like a vehicle for your thoughts and ideas so it's good to learn how to use it and recognize signals yeah. when something's a hell yes or when it's like a maybe exactly i mean the the biggest error you can make is not listening to yourself and you know feeling pressure to work a certain way when deep down you kind of feel that's not sustainable um and you know i think a lot of people suffer from that i certainly suffer from that and a lot less than i used to i think i feel more um, able to, you know, have 10 minutes at lunch where, uh, I watched some Wimbledon for 15 minutes at lunch today. Um, you know, rather than sitting at my desk with my lunch while scrolling through emails, because for me, and this is just my, um, my perspective, but you know, I am probably a bit ADHD, you know, I'm not diagnosed or anything like that, but 
um, I need like constant stimulation. I need, need to be doing all sorts of different things. Part of the reason I love doing VC is part of the reason I do things alongside um, VC. Um, but to combat that, I have to have mindfulness time. So I meditate once, twice a day. Um, not always, but a lot of the time. Try and exercise um, a fair bit, but not loads. I'm not 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 a great runner. Quite enjoy five k, but it's quite hard work. Um, and uh, and yeah, doing things like actually just um, you know enjoying my lunch that I get a lot of pleasure from, and not doing something while I'm eating my lunch. Even on the bus home, if I'm not cycling home on the bus, just do nothing. Just stare at, stare through the window, stare at the stare at the little screen in the bus. And just let your mind rest and actually let it be bored. Um, because I think it's it's so tiring having a racing mind all the time. And I think that's where burnout comes from. I think that's fantastic advice. I can tell when I'm about to have a bad period because if there's a point where I don't realize but I've just carried my phone from to go and get like a banana from the cupboard and I carried my phone with me, that's when I know that the circuitry is like not working yeah. for me so i have to yeah. take a break and reset and yeah it's, good and it's to be. like you know it's it's when you're it's when you're putting on your toast and in the time the toast is toasting you're doing the dishwasher putting your washing on um you know getting the milk out of the fridge boiling the kettle so that when the toast comes up you've kind of had your breakfast and it's like yeah. just just slow down but i i think the thing that i've definitely um yeah, that I've definitely started to reward myself for is feeling bored. Like on the weekend or if I'm on holiday and the sort of stimulation of work disappears, I used to hate that feeling of boredom, thinking like, just give me stuff to do. Um, but actually, I recognize that as a really important part of my life now. Um, and the boredom is actually like a resetting. Fascinating. So when you say reward yourself, is it just like a conscious um thought like this is this is productive yeah no, it's, it's by, by myself a car or a <laughs> i'm joking but it, um, it's a yeah no it's 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 just a sort of um metaphorical pat on the back yeah okay whilst we're on this topic then you're 28 and you're general partner at vc fund which is bloody good going and you're a founder and you're a podcast host so you're a great test subject I'm going to ask you five quick like lifestyle questions and try and work out what you have do or don't do. So answer like as close as you can. Yeah. Okay. Do you go to the pub every weekend? No. One, how many times a month or not? Um, four. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, the, yeah. I'll go out for drinks three times a week. Uh, no, sorry. Three times. <laughs> Three, three, every day three, <laughs> three, three times a three times a month and i often see friends but don't drink okay interesting do you watch tv yeah. mm, rarely although i'm somehow into love island at the moment so it's an exception <laughs> <laughs> okay do you work nine till do you work what's your average working day Eight till six thirty. Eight thirty till six thirty. And do you exercise before or after or during the day? After or on weekends, either tennis or running, and cycling to and from work, but on an electric bike. So not sure whether that counts. <laughs> I 
Okay, then the last one is like social connection, like how often do you see friends then? Unrelated to work. Yeah, a, a lot. Um, three times a week, um, including the weekend, but would like to focus on that a lot more. I have quite a reactive social life. I'll go to things that I'm asked to, but I won't often organize things and I get a lot yeah. um, of pleasure out of organizing things. Um, and I don't do it enough and I don't remember the great times that I have with my friends, uh, clearly enough. And I would get a lot of benefit from remembering those times better. Are you really ambitious? And I get the sense that you're turbo ambitious. I'm really ambitious. You never know how ambitious other people are. So it's like, you know, where, where do I sit on the scale? Um, yeah, I think most people around me would say that I'm very ambitious. I would say I'm very ambitious. I think the problem with ambition is that every, every time you achieve something, you want more. Um, and that, that's, a, um, that's a fault of mine and also something that I quite enjoy. Um, and it means that I always have a purpose. I suppose I would, over the years, like to redirect on my ambition from, you know, success in my career to success in my personal relationships and things like that. And I, I, you know, I have great personal relationships with friends and, you know, my girlfriend and my family. Um, but I think those last three areas could get more of my attention um, and I would like them to over, over the next few decades. But, you know, at the moment, Life is really good. I really enjoy what I do. Um, I really love it. I love everything in my life. Um, and so I wouldn't really change that much. And that's really cool. Um, when you like, enjoy stuff, it's definitely easier to keep going. So it's, you don't want to mess with that and try and channel energy away, I feel like. To gauge your ambition, what, what car are you going to have, do you think, when you're like, or... Which collection of cars are you going to have when you're like 60s? <laughs> Great question. I love cars. So it's an impossible question. Um, God, you know what? I mean, I want to have kind of everything over the years. I, I think, you know, the idea of owning sort of million pound cars right now just feels a bit ridiculous. I'm not sure how interested I am in that. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to deny the fact that I would like to own sort of a, a Ferrari and those sorts of cars over the years. Um, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm quite into second hand. Um, at the end of the day, I'm an investor and I don't like losing lots of money on, on investments. Yeah. Um, so second hand so is what, good. Yeah. What Ferrari would you go for? Are we thinking about F40? Well, at the moment, I mean, there's, yeah, I mean, if money was no object, yeah, F40s are nice. I like the LaFerrari. Um, what's the one that's just come out that's really not the L, LP, LP something, I think. Mm. Um, and but you know the 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 one that feels a bit more realistic in the in the nearer term, not tomorrow, but in the nearer term, maybe like a four five eight something like that. Oh yeah, that'd be very cool. Yeah. The thing that I find mental about like cars and also watches actually is that if you pick right, they do appreciate in value and sometimes yeah. to a ridiculous amount. Like if you had a McLaren F one, you've potentially made tens of millions and it's tax free. Yeah, yeah. I used to um. So at uni, in my first year, I remember I was sat in my room and I used to just sort of trawl through um, like uh, car websites and I started creating a list of cars that I thought would go up in value. Um, so like, you know, sort of 70s Porsche 911s, often the sort of category defining cars 
Um, so this was really the the VC being born in me was the kind of, you know, think about what, what are the category defining cars. Now it's companies I'm thinking about. But, you know, Generation 1 Golfs, um, uh, first generation Range Rovers, all of these sorts of cars um, that really broke um, broke the mold and showed people what was possible and created a new category. Um, I uh, I think all of those are pretty interesting investments. That's a fantastic idea. Do you think that's possible to make a, an investment fund that buys classic cars? Because with yeah. petrol cars being banned in seven years, that is huge. That means there'll never again be a car made like the cars that we have now. Yeah, I think only no, more good. people. Yeah, no, it's a good idea. I mean, I think, yeah, maybe you can already. I'm not sure. I mean, the, the problem with it versus like, you know, a, a, a share in a company is that there's a big maintenance bill attached to it and some practical issues. But um, yeah, I'm sure I'm yeah, sure true. there are people who do it. Um, and yeah, I think it would be cool. I'd, you know, with petrol cars being banned, does that reduce the demand for petrol cars? Um, even amongst collectors, I'm not sure. I'm not sure which way it would go. But yeah, mm. it's interesting. When I was reading one of your blog posts, one of the interesting points you made about founders was that it's good when they've got, I can't remember how you worded it, but a direct line of sight to money. I think you worded it as like commercial. Um, commercial oh, homing missile to money. That's it. <laughs> yeah. When I heard that somewhere else, I didn't coin it, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great term. But yeah. can you can you tell us a story of how you paid for your university? Yeah. Um, yeah, I sort of tell this story and people say, oh, you shouldn't really say that on um, in public because it's illegal, but it's not illegal. It's, um, it's against bookies policies, but it's not illegal. Um, yeah, so... Um, all of these books actually so back in the day it was there was one particular bookie who offered a huge um uh referral bonus or sign-on bonus but to withdraw it you had to place quite a lot of bets i think a thousand or two thousand pounds worth of bets um and so i did it for myself i placed the bets but i also laid the bets so it was like bet on manu to win but then on on a betting exchange lay that and a lay bet is just for that result not to happen so it could be a draw or the other team wins and um so it basically makes the bet risk-free minus a small sort of margin unless you can find a, a match where there's an arbitrage between the the lay bet and the um the, the bet um so I started doing this for mates and giving them um splitting the profit with them um that worked really well because students love the idea of getting you know 50 quid <laughs> for no work um, and then set up a kind of network of people around the UK doing um, doing this for them. And I'd pay referrers a fee um, and then I'd split the profit with the person whose, whose account it was. Um, and so, yeah, that that kind of just spiraled. And, um, you know, I told all my housemates about it and um, we all did pretty well from it, actually. I, you know, in hindsight, maybe I wouldn't have told my housemates, but um, it was it was much more fun doing it with them all than just sort of, you know, burying myself in my room, doing all these bets. That's incredible. I'm sure that's a um, a good signal if someone has that homing missile nature. Yeah, well, so short, yeah, shortly after, um, shortly after I stopped, well, I left uni. They um, they turned off that sign-on offer. So I don't know whether it wouldn't have been it wouldn't have been me who made them turn it off, but I'm sure there are other people doing it as well. Mm. I think that's why it helps to be 
you're better off having like a positive bias towards these like hacky money things than you are assuming that they're all a scam. Mm-hmm. Especially if you look at crypto, if you were just like, if you tried 10 things on a small level, some of the things you could have done are ridiculous, but it's definitely only a point in time until everyone floods in and plugs it. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. I think it's having a positive attitude to them, but I think, you know, you, you can't be an idiot about it because, um, you know, for every, if you're an idiot about it, for every 10 that you try, um, you know, nine are going to fail. Maybe if you're smart about it, yeah. every 10 that you try, the 10 that you pick, seven, seven work or seven fail or something, but maybe the odds are slightly better. So you do need to pick your opportunities and not go for the sort of get rich quick scheme that's advertised on you know the, the youtube video you watch you're watching later on but it's uh yeah there there are a lot of opportunities out there for sure and um most of it is just getting on with it and doing something yeah 100 percent. and from reading some of your stories about how you got your existing job at episode one loads of people try and break into bc and it's very hard so what do you think in hindsight made your application stand out and got you the job well, I don't think my application stood out actually because um, I was rejected initially. So um, they they turned me down. Um, it was a cold application. You know, I applied just through the through the sort of application form, having been sent their newsletter with the advert um, uh, for the job for the associate role back then. And uh, I, after being rejected, messaged them saying I'd urge you to reconsider for you know, a couple of reasons. And I turned up at the door unannounced just to sort of show a face thinking, you know, at this point, I really wanted the job. So I just thought I'll do whatever I can do to get in front of them. Um, Heard back from them saying, due to your persistence, we'll give you a phone interview. So I had a phone interview and and it went from there. Um, But I think, you know, from what I've learned from the others who who did hire me, a large part of it was just they knew how much I wanted the job um, and I hated my old job. Um, and <laughs> through researching um, through researching what VC was, um, what I'd be doing, I just realized it was the perfect role for me. It was, this, it was this interesting intersection between investing and startups that were both things that I loved. Um, and the more I read about it, the more I wanted to keep on reading about VC and all the intricacies and nuances of it. Um, and so I think, you know, I came into the interviews quite educated for about VC for someone who hadn't been a VC. Um, you know, I'd done a few hacky little things like revise a few quotes from great VCs from blogs that I'd read um, to make it <laughs> seem like I'd probably read a lot more than I really had. Um, so there, there were a few hacky tricks but, you know, those, those hacky tricks, everyone, you know, it's sort of part of sales and part of VC is sales. So it, it's a it's a signal even um, in and of itself. Um, and, yeah, they just knew I wanted the job. I think, I, you know, I'd done some Crowdcube investing. I'd invested some like very small amounts uh, in public markets as well. So they could, um, you know, there was evidence of my interest in startups and investing. Um, and... They also knew that I'd been an entrepreneur. I'd had a couple of businesses at that point. Um, so I think, you know, they took a wild card. I guess I was 24 at the time. Um, and there were people with more experience. But, um, yeah, I suppose they they sort of took a, took a punt on me. Yeah, that's really incredible. I think there needs to be a word for that because when there's a word for something, you can encourage it. But, like, 
a good friend of mine did the same. She knocked on the door of a restaurant in Notting Hill that's very like well known for a job there, like a PA job. And that was the thing that out of hundreds or thousands of applicants, that's the thing that got over the line. Exactly. It's just like resourcefulness. Yeah. It's really, yeah, I think that's a good word for it. It's resort, be resourceful, have initiative, be passionate. Um, cause people sense passion and enthusiasm. Um, those things go a really, really long way. I think the, the sort of your first job out of uni, you, you, you get encouraged down the, it, here's a CV, send it out and then see what you get. But that just, for me, that's just so broken because how do you get yeah. your passion across in a CV? Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, and it's, there are different ways of doing this, like, you know, passion, enthusiasm, um, are, are great for some things, like sometimes it's annoying. So, you know, you have to dial it down in certain yeah. situations, but I think, um, yeah, there, there is no right way, but I, those things served me well at that point in time, for sure. Yeah, I definitely sometimes just ask way too many questions because I get quite excited about what they're talking about. Yeah, curiosity. Um, I mean, huge one, you know, both for founders and for when we look to hire people. I mean, I think it's it's probably the word that um, is spoken about the most when talking about what traits you want to see in a VC that you're going to hire. You know, it's we're looking for curious minds because um, you're always learning new about new areas, about new companies, and and you know you need to keep on learning. Um, and so curiosity is really important. Mm. How do you, um, sort of notice curiosity in people? I think it is question. So I, I often, I, when I'm speaking to someone, the moment, so if it's a founder, the moment that, um, as you know, that's a separate topic. So I think you notice curiosity by the types of questions that people ask, um, and you know there's I, I think what we're talking about here is like smart curiosity because i think you can get people who just ask lots of questions and that's nice and it's fun um but the people who ask lots of really good questions um are the people that you know we're really interested in and um i think you know it's you, you can tell when someone's thought deeply um when someone's a deep thinker i think that's uh i find that really compelling and they've thought about um, how different and very different things interact with each other. So it's also part of having a creative mind, I think. You know, think about whether there are parallels in these two very different areas. Maybe it's like investing and it's, you know, being a chef, for example. Are there some things that you learn about being a chef that actually apply to being a founder? And so I think, yeah, having a kind of creative mind that puts together interesting questions is a really good sign of curiosity and of the right sort of curiosity. That's a good, that's a good point. And that reminds me of another thing I was reading that you wrote. Um, I think you were saying Michael Moritz from Sequoia used to, he was a journalist and he used to frame his questions so that it didn't put founders on the defensive. So I think the example was instead of asking what's wrong with your company, you'd say, what keeps you up at night? And then it pulls you alongside them instead of directing at them. Do you have any frameworks or mental models or ways to develop a question so that you can get the information you need without scaring the person? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I don't, and I'm still learning. I think everyone's still learning and getting better. I think Michael, so Michael Moritz was a journalist. Um, I don't know whether it was him who was talking about framing questions, but I, I've certainly thought about um, how important framing questions 
is when um, talking to founders. And there are lots of great VCs who've been um, journalists before. And I think it's uh, there's quite a, a shared skill set um, because a lot of what both roles require is curiosity and fact finding. Um, also forming a view of the, the future. Um, so I think I, I don't have a framework, but I do think about it a lot. And at its core, pre-seed and seed investing is a really human business. Um, and, you know, understanding how people work is important when trying to gauge a founder's character, but also when trying to evaluate the opportunity um, uh, that, a, that a startup has, because you're trying to put yourself in the shoes of their customers and their their, their prospective customers um, to understand, you know, how strongly this pain point is felt. And then you're trying to understand how many people feel that pain point strongly, um, because that's kind of a, that's kind of your first principles thinking for how, how big an opportunity is. Um, when it comes to uh, framing questions and understanding the right way to ask a question, um, I think, you know, it, frankly, like it depends on the day. Um, sometimes I'm not going to lie. If I'm really tired, um, it's a lot harder and you just want to get straight to the facts and um, just ask difficult questions. And I really try not to be difficult with founders. I don't think I often am. Um, but there's there's definitely a way um, to ask questions in a great way that's a, a much softer form of questioning um that taps into um that makes people feel like you want to understand them rather than criticize them and find fault um and i think it's that it's it's that approach of gaining understanding um that actually gets you to the truth um and the truth is often pretty different from what they said 10 minutes before when they were kind of in pitch mode um so it's really useful and, and it can be more valuable you know the truth can be worse than what they were saying in um pitch mode in terms of maybe the business isn't so good but you uncover the way that they're thinking about that issue um which is often the most compelling part of the pitch um because again you start to understand like you know how are they thinking about this how deeply have they thought about it how creatively are they thinking about it how are they going to tackle the issue how have they tackled these issues before these kinds of problems um, and, and it's often when you get into those sorts of conversations that you, um, you start building real conviction in a founder or an opportunity. Yeah, that's really interesting. You, you worked in like semi-corporate environment for a year, right? Before you came to episode one, what in, in early stage founders, because you're looking for outliers and innovative ideas, what level of character and ways of working do they need to have to not set off any alarm bells like if they were 10 minutes late to a meeting is that a big red flag or is it like okay they're busy they might have overrun they're passionate about their idea what are the, what are some standards that i suppose you'd expect yeah it's a great a great question i mean look, i i really am anti-setting sort of rule-based um criteria because everyone's different and like success comes in many forms i mean yeah it might well be possible that people who are late to meetings go on to more success <laughs> um yeah so it's hard to say whether it's positive or negative i mean there's a question you know do you want to work with people are you going to be able to tolerate working with someone who's who's always late but i, 
I don't think I would mark it against their chances of success. I don't think it's always a combination of things that help you get to a decision rather than one thing on its own. Um, and one person who's late um, for a meeting but does all these other things is very different from one person who's late and um, does a load of different things. So, um, you know, it's it's always a combination of things that lead to decisions um, and lead to your kind of opinions forming. Um, yeah, I don't really, I really don't have, um, I don't think any, or certainly many rules of, that would sort of qualify someone out in terms of behaviours. Okay, that's good news because at work, I feel like, like in my day job, I feel like under so much pressure to conform into like certain ways of being. And I guess that's just the nature of working in a big organization. But they seem, some of them seem counterproductive to like creativity and ideas and stuff. So yeah, look, I mean, the, 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 their behaviors have to, have to fit in the organization that they're in, right? And um, so, you know, the behaviors a startup founder can get away with um, and that might actually be effective are very different from that of, you know, um, a manager at a big corporation. Um, so it's, it's really every case has to be taken on its own, um, on its own merits. Yeah. Which behavior do you have that you're most proud of? <laughs> um, uh, it's a good question. I, I think, I think I'm conflicted in whether I'm open-minded or judgmental, or maybe I'm both. Um, I think, you know, people would say that I'm open-minded, but I know that in my mind, I'm quite judgmental, um, and probably take some shortcuts when sort of deciding what I think about people. Um, but at least I'm aware of those. I I think I'm very, I think I'm very self-aware and I'm like very reflective, deeply reflective, um, and really try and correct myself where I think I've been, where I've been proven wrong. Um, so, you know, I'm often often small things will happen where I had an assumption and that assumption gets uh, busted, you know, a month later or a year later. And I think actually, you know, I remember being quite hard line on that particular thing and I've now been proven wrong. Um, and I think that happens enough times and, and you just start to realize that, um, you know, everything, well, I think there are very, yeah, very few rules about sort of, um, how i think it's difficult to judge people i think if you're if you're judging you probably don't know everyone's context if you don't understand someone you probably don't understand their context um so yeah maybe maybe sort of being open to change in some way um but i i don't know you know i don't know where i sit in the spectrum um of yeah. being open to change i might be right in the middle Open to change and self-awareness is a good combination because that leads to all the other things that you can work on to be good enough or something. What does your self-awareness look like? Are you, you, you take time to think on the bus and you meditate. Do you ever sit down with a problem, for example? Or like, yeah. when do you, do you have, do you have thinking time as part of your day? Is what I'm trying to say. I, yeah. So I, I, yeah, do have thinking time. I mean, it's not built into my day, but I'm always thinking, um, yeah it's i don't know it's maybe it's it feels a bit like an addiction um that i'd like to switch off probably more often um you know constantly thinking um and that's why i meditate to sort of turn off the thinking for a while and i do manage you know my thoughts are very few and far between when i'm meditating um and it's good just for your mental state to prove that you still can have a quiet mind at times 
Um, so, um, yeah, I don't deliberately build it into my day. No, it's a lie. I suppose, yeah, I have the meditation. I have some exercise. I do think about whether I'm switching off a lot of times during the day, but it's probably in small chunks rather than it's probably in small, in short, frequent chunks rather than, um, long, uh, long, in, infrequent chunks. Um, apart from that meditation and maybe some exercise and stuff like that. But, um, I didn't, I didn't really answer your question to, you know, the self-awareness part. I don't, I don't really, I don't really know. I think it's, I think it's self-evaluation. It's just routine. Reflection. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of good data points. I think in this podcast, of one version of what like high performance looks like, which is cool. Mm-hmm. The, um, I've really appreciated your time for this whole podcast. There's one more thing that I'm keen to learn from you, and that is how do you see content as part of your life and career? So you have a podcast and stuff. Is, is it a tool that you use? Is it something you just love doing? Like, What's your sort of thinking behind putting time and energy into putting podcast episodes out there? I've listened, and they're very good. Well, thank you. That's kind. I mean, I... Um... Yeah, I mean, look, I've really enjoyed this podcast. I think you've asked questions that we don't ask enough of our guests and, you know, getting right into the weeds of the, the human psyche and all that. I think it's a lot of fun. We're more just sort of, you know, what what do you do? How do you do it? So I think I didn't ever set out to do lots of content. I sort of wrote a couple of blogs two or three years ago and thought, oh, that's quite fun. Four years ago, that's quite fun. Um, but I don't know. I, I think I started recognizing it as actually an opportunity beyond anything because um you know i started getting more more linkedin followers and thought okay well (laughs) um you know brand to an extent in vc is quite important um and you actually struggle to gain very much respect um from all of the different um uh sort of ecosystem participants if you want to call them that you know founders and vcs and angels and all these people unless you have some sort of a brand you know who's who's this 24 year old who's mm. just like done a bit of consulting and has like had a, t- a couple yeah. of tiny businesses like no no one's really going to listen to you and so it's almost i think it's a growth hack you know it's just because what i put out there is out there it doesn't mean it's more it doesn't mean i'm having more valuable thoughts than um anyone else but they're they're not putting them out there whereas i am and i think that's I think that served. I think that served me quite well in sort of accelerating um, my career, and and then I do enjoy having, um, you know, from just a light-hearted point. Everyone likes a dopamine hit, and um, <laughs> at this point, you know, when I post and get a few likes, it's a nice feeling and sparks some debate. I can get answers to things. I think that's you know, I posted today about um, uh, whether anyone had like a data set on the different paths that companies take to 100 million revenue because i hadn't seen that data set and a whole load of stuff comes back so it's a really useful tool it's kind of crowdsourced um knowledge and yeah i find it fun you know i don't spend much time frankly on social media or anything like that it's kind of i'm in i post and then i'm out um okay that's good that, but yeah i'm not particularly addicted to social media in fact i really really am not addicted at all i'm not not a heavy user of social media um, but I do enjoy it. Yeah, super interesting. 
It's interesting. I feel like it, I'd agree. It seems like a growth hack. I've only done like 15 episodes now and mm-hmm. it's amazing which guests will be like, I'm actually in London in a week. Do you want to go for a drink or something? It's yeah, no, everyone, everyone loves coming on a podcast because it's kind of a no pressure way of getting your name out there. And it's, um, it appeals yeah. to everyone ego and it's, um, <laughs> it, everyone enjoys the buzz of doing a bit of public speaking in a kind of low pressure environment, I think. So it's, I mean, it's a good, it's a good way to attract good names that you wouldn't otherwise be able to speak to. Yeah. On that note, as a last point, just to put it out there into the universe and make it happen, who would be your dream person to speak to on riding unicorns ah it's a good dream person i mean you're only allowed one sorry that was my phone go yeah dream person i mean look it's uh i think it's got to be like either the president of the united states or um or elon musk i was gonna say i mean it's so cliche but cliches are cliches for a reason um yeah so, you know, it, maybe it'd be him. Maybe it'd be him. It'd be quite interesting. Although I don't know if I'd have that great a conversation. You know, I'd almost rather someone who I think I'd really get into the weeds with. I'm not sure. I might be a bit starstruck by someone like Elon. Yeah. Yeah, maybe I'd... Um... Yeah, I feel like he's got... He's got, like, his... I think he has his answers planned because he's done it so much. Yeah. So I think it'd be hard to get through to, like, the, the core of who he is. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm not sure. But it would be interesting, hard. nevertheless. Yeah. 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 Okay, well, either the President of the United States or Elon Musk. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Make it happen. <laughs> All right, Hector. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Cheers, Ali. It was great.